Welcome to The Lead, a podcast from New Lines Magazine, where we delve into the biggest ideas, events, and personalities from around the world. I'm Kwango Liwewe. 20 years ago, the world was horrified by the mass atrocities that unfolded in the Darfur region of Sudan. Now, since the resumption of war in the country since April this year, between the paramilitary group, the Rapid Support Forces, RSF, led by Mohammed Hamdan Dagalo, and the Sudanese armed forces led by Abdel Fattah al-Burhan. More than 9,000 civilians have been killed and 5.6 million have fled their homes according to United Nations figures. Today, we turn our focus on Darfur, a state that has been the epicenter of a conflict for over two decades. The civil strife erupted in April 2003 when two Darfuri rebel groups, the Sudan Liberation Movement and the Justice and Equality Movement launched an attack on Sudan's government military targets. In response, irregular fighters from Arab communities known as the Janjaweed emerged and systematically targeted non-Arabs, accusing them of supporting the rebels. They raped the women, killed the men, and looted their properties. The Janjaweed then evolved into the RSF, which along with other Arab militias is behind the recent and ongoing slaughter of civilians in Darfur. Joining me to unpack the story is Gerrit Kurtz, who is a researcher on conflict prevention, peace building, and diplomacy in the Horn of Africa. He's based at the German Institute for International and Security Affairs in Berlin. Later in the show, we'll hear from Niamat Akmadi, who is the founder of the Darfur Women Action Group. Gerrit, welcome to the lead. Hello, Kwango. So in my introduction, I gave a brief overview of the conflict in Darfur that erupted 20 years ago. Can you unpack for us what the underlying causes of the conflict were? Yeah, I think you already captured it quite well. We can go back even further, of course. So there's been a very long history of the marginalization of Darfur. Darfur actually only became fully part of Sudan, which was then under Anglo-Egyptian rule during the First World War in 1916. And back then, actually, Darfur was the Darfur Sultanate was a state more perhaps for longer time than, than the rest of, of Sudan was back in the, in the 19th century and, and before that. But several factors uh, are what we need to look at. Another is the effect of, of climate change. Since the, the 70s or so, we've seen desertification and changing rain patterns. Um, affecting, of course, not just uh, Sudan, but especially also the Sahelian part. Of, um, and that has brought seasonal migration patterns of nomads yeah, more and more towards the south. And that has brought them into conflict with farming communities. These nomads and farming communities are often of different ethnicity, though um, it's not strictly. So this, but the nomads or some of the nomads were Arabs or identified as Arabs and the government in Sudan at the time, led by uh, President Umar al-Bashir, was Islamist and focused on the Arabization and yeah, Islamic rule. They supported these these groups or encouraged them to mobilize on an ethnic identity. 
So when these armed movements that you mentioned erupted to the scene in 2003, basically, with their attacks on uh, army garrisons in uh, Fasha and, and Niala, they could build on this resentment on, and of marginalization that had been building up for a long time. The thing was then that the regular Sudanese armed forces back then already were yeah, not fully equipped uh, or well-trained to battle the very dynamic, very mobile rebel force um, because they were so yeah, fi- uh, concentrated on, on defending fixed positions. So what they did was um, work together with these informal militia that you mentioned, uh, the so-called Janjaweed, that and gave them weapons, also worked uh, together with them on a tactical basis sometimes, because they, these Janjaweed, they were very mobile and they yeah, could operate more effectively in this terrain than the Sudanese armed forces. However, the Janjaweed did not really pursue the rebels that much at the time, but followed this ideology of Arab supremacy. So what we saw was targeted killings of non-Arab minorities, burning of villages, killing of men, raping of women, yeah, similarly to what we see now. Okay, so just to be clear, when you talk about the non-Arab communities, are these essentially Black Africans? Um, they, they are all Africans. Um, I mean, uh, I think these distinctions, uh, who is African, who is Arab, who is Black, who is not, um, these are very contested notions. Um, so I, I would be a bit careful uh, uh, about that, about using uh, uh, those, those terms. Um, yeah, perhaps so much for that. Okay, so let's move to present-day Darfur, where reports are emerging that at least 1,335 internally displaced people are estimated to have been killed in an attack on a camp near Janaina. So it's believed that so far this is the largest mass killing since the war broke out between SAF and RSF in April this year. So are these killings tied to the conflict between SAF and RSF? Yes, they are. They happened shortly after the RSF captured the army garrison in El Janena and well defeated the Sudanese armed forces there and expelled them basically away from the provincial capital. And some of them, some of these forces, even fled to Chad with their equipment and handed them over there to the Chadian forces. Um, so while the Sudanese armed forces hadn't really protected the IDP camp. There was now no one left anyway to act as a deterrent, perhaps, for the RSF and allied Arab militia to go into this IDP camp. So this is what happened then shortly afterwards. But there were also allegations that the Sudanese forces just turned a blind eye when these attacks were going on. Yeah, and as I said, they weren't protecting them. So, and this is actually a pattern that we've seen also before this war broke out. There were also large-scale attacks against civilians, including Masalit in Westafur, in the past few years. And time and again, the regular forces, the, the Sudanese armed forces, they were sometimes stationed nearby, but sometimes they were outnumbered. 
or they did they only intervened very late or not at all and of course now they're in open conflict and open war with the rsf nationwide but yeah they were not they did not protect civilians there indeed so you can say they turned a blind eye Okay, so now the demographics of Darfur are diverse and the state is broken down into the north, south, east, west, and central. And we're seeing parts of the west and south, they're mainly bearing the brunt of these atrocities. So what's happening in the other parts, such as the east, where the population there is mainly Arabic-speaking and they're deemed to be affiliated to RSF? What's it like on their end? Yeah, exactly. Because of that different ethnic composition in East Darfur, we've seen relatively little fighting there because they are so dominant there or the the, the, the population is relatively aligned or relatively close to the... So it's much quieter there. In the past few weeks, we've seen, as I think you, you mentioned, the RSF capture these strategic state capitals in South Darfur, in Central Darfur, and in West Darfur. And now the fight is on for El Fasha in North Darfur, which is actually the biggest garrison uh, in, in Darfur and uh, quite heavily fortified. And also the site where many IDPs uh, or many people have been displaced to, where there are many IDPs now. There are also armed groups, other armed groups present in the area. So, yeah. The current battle is for Fasha. We only have little information exactly how it's going, but there have already been warnings that this could turn out very bloody indeed as well. Okay. Yes, we've talked about the fall of certain parts of Darfur, such as Nyala, which is seen as a strategic and commercially viable city in Sudan. What other areas in the Darfur region are really strategic to the country? And what are your fears about them falling under the RSF? I mean, the RSF already control most of Darfur. So, I mean, as I said, they've captured the state capitals of three states in Darfur, and they were already in control of the east. And now it's only the north, basically, that they are not in control of. So, yeah, of course, for the RSF, it's important to control the land border, um, to charge where they're getting apparently supplies uh, delivered from the UAE, but also uh, to access the land border to the Central African Republic, where there are Wagner forces that are generally supportive of, of the RSF. So that makes it strategic, certainly, for, for the RSF in that sense. Okay, so we've also heard from the EU's foreign policy chief, Joseph Borrell, who said, and I'll quote what he said, he said, the international community cannot turn a blind eye to what is happening in Darfur and allow another genocide to happen in this region, end of quote. And then the UN's humanitarian coordinator for Sudan, Clementine Nkweta Salami, said, and I quote, we continue to receive unrelenting and appalling reports of sexual and gender-based violence, enforced disappearances, arbitrary detentions, and grave violations of human and children's rights. What is happening is verging on pure evil. End of quote. So now my question is, in the previous conflict, we saw the UN respond with a lot of vigor to deal with atrocities, such as the UN-AU mission was set up in Darfur, and these were actually allowed to protect civilians. We also saw an arms 
embargo imposed, and then there was a huge humanitarian aid effort, as well as the referral to the International Criminal Court. Right now, not much has been done to stem the ongoing atrocities. What are your thoughts on this? Yeah, I think we should also remember that initially the United Nations uh, and other international institutions did not react with rigor to what was happening to the atrocities in Darfur, but it took quite a while, actually, and a lot of mobilization and speaking out from Sudanese, but also from international public campaigns in the US, notably, but also elsewhere, for that to happen. So, yeah, but the peace operation, first the African Union peace operation, then the, the joint peace operation between the UN and AU only came in once the height of the genocide had already happened. So while it did serve a function also through its presence to to protect some civilians later on when it was deployed, it did not stop the genocide that had already happened to some extent at that time in 2003 and 2004 especially. And right now, I think despite these finally clear statements that, that you cited, I think we do see that international actors overwhelmed and yeah, split and they are not united and they are not mobilizing sufficient efforts that would be required to actually rein in this kind of horrific violence. So it's safe to say they haven't learned from past lessons, have they? No. I mean, it's one of the these times, unfortunately, again, where this often used phrase never again is is not taken seriously enough. Okay, and in your opinion, the the Save Darfur Coalition, for instance, did that work and should something like that be done again? I mean, that coalition also had its difficulties, of course, also from, let's say, a post-colonial point of view, of course. So perhaps not exactly in the same way and calling it the same way. Still, I think mobilizing public support is still in in other countries, is still important if you want to mobilize also political will by the United States or by European governments or indeed closer in in the region. Because, of course, and and we see that also with, with other foreign policy crises, when there is an domestic pressure, then of course that does make a difference for governments to care more. But I think it should also be important to say that there is not just one step, one measure that international actors could just take and then everything would be fine and then the war would end and the atrocities would end. It's not as simple as that. And we we shouldn't pretend that it was Still, I think much more could be done than is actually done. Let's now focus on the African Union, which is the regional organization on the continent. What are your thoughts on how they're dealing with this issue? Yeah, actually, the African Union is meeting today when we are recording this on on the 15th of of November. And the, the Peace and Security Council has a ministerial session focused on Sudan. So we will see what will come out of that. But so far, unfortunately, the engagement of the African Union has been rather slow and disappointed many also in in Sudan. 
when the war broke out, they were among the quickest. They organized a very broad platform that was very inclusive internationally. And they established the so-called extended mechanism. That is this kind of diplomatic platform that could have been or perhaps could still be the central coordinating platform for all mediation efforts on Sudan. But since then, they have not met often enough. And so I think they haven't really followed up. They haven't also appointed a high-level special envoy. That was something that was discussed in, in the months since the war broke out, that the AU would establish a new Sudan envoy that could lead those uh, efforts on a high level. But so far, officials in the African Union Commission are leading on the Sudan front who also have other issues on their plate, so can't focus fully on, on Sudan. So I think that is the problem. What about the regional players in Sudan who all happen to be Middle Eastern countries, such as Egypt, Saudi Arabia, Turkey, and the United Arab Emirates? Would it be right to say they're currently disengaged because of the Israel-Palestine conflict? I mean, I'm sure that um, the conflict in, in Israel and, and Palestine draws a lot of attention also for them. But I wouldn't say that they are disengaged from Sudan. I mean, just some examples. So we've seen um, discussions, negotiations between the RSF and uh, the Sudanese armed forces in Jeddah, in, in Saudi Arabia, facilitated by the United States, um, Saudi Arabia and IGAD, the, the regional organization in, in the Horn of Africa, just in late, uh, starting in late October, coming out with the first result early November. Not a ceasefire, they couldn't agree on that, but humanitarian uh, commitments. So that is something where Saudi Arabia is, is engaged in, for, for example. There are recurrent reports that the United Arab Emirates has been delivering some dozens of flights, uh, weapons to the Chad. So they are supporting the RSF. On the other hand, there have been reports, uh, credible reports, that Egypt has delivered Turkish drones to the Sudanese armed forces and are possibly providing also other military uh, support, though, of course, not visible at, at the moment. When it comes to Darfur, in, in, indeed, it's not just the, the regional powers, but also the um, international institutions like the United Nations or the African Union, they have hardly, as collective organs, not just as individuals, individual leaders, have hardly said anything about Darfur, let alone taken any measures to address this specific kind of violence, this specific identity-based violence, uh, especially against the lead in Darfur. No, in that sense, yes, you can say that. Gareth, thank you very much for your insight. You're welcome. Niamat Atmadi is the founder of the Darfur Women Action Group. Niamat, in her role as a human rights advocate, had been and is still vocal about the massive human rights abuses and the genocide in Darfur. Her actions led to two attempts on her life, forcing her to flee Sudan. Niamat, Thank you very much for joining us. So basically, what are you hearing and what's happening on the ground in Darfur? 
Well, unfortunately, we're, we are hearing is horrifying stories beyond describable and unbelievably horrible stories of horror. As recently, videos circulated of mass graves of people who are wounded and buried alive. They're forced their relatives and people from their communities to bury them, after which those who were forced to bury their dead relatives are also killed. And these videos are recorded by the RSF Janjaweed militia themselves. We have also um, learned that 800 people, most of them are young men between 15 to 20, most of them are less than 30 years old, have been executed, um, have been held hostage for days. They were tortured. They're cut into different pieces in front of others to, to watch, and then they were all killed. Also, systematically singling out the indigenous African uh, tribes from Masalit and other indigenous African tribes in Western for uh, basically an, a, an area part of al city called Ardamata. They um, selected traditional um, leaders who are holding the historical and cultural heritage of these communities, um, systematically killed them along with their families. In all these families, nobody no one was left to tell the story even. So now on a personal level, how is it for you? Because you have heard these stories before and it can't really be easy. Now you're more or less reliving the trauma and the anguish. Um, these are issues you've campaigned against for many years. And now it seems as if it's back to square one. How are you coping with all of this? I mean, all this echoes the devastation of 20 years ago. Well, it is unimaginable this the devastation, this and destruction that we have to witness again and again. And this time around is even worse than 20 years ago because of the fact that the Genjaweed, who used to be an armed militias on horses and camelbacks, now they have grown into more sophisticated militia with um, training equipment and uh, enablers in the region, international and regional enablers that supplying them with weapons and, and money. So when they attack, back then they were attacking people in the villages and people flee from those villages and come into the cities. Now the attack has been directed into those cities so people do not have a place to go. And for me and many of the diaspora community, it is really sickening and it is hard. It is hard to imagine. It is mortifying. It is sickening. It is so traumatizing. But we don't have an option even to get discouraged or uh, process the pain. We have to get up and do something about it every day and watching this horror. And what is most painful is that um, it seems like this does not mobilize or generate outrage as it used to be. And that is scary and dangerous when you see the world tolerating genocide, the world tolerating horror and mass killing. And, and unfortunately, 
uh, our African leaders are also keeping silence. Those who are systematically singled out to be killed is because of who they are, because of being indigenous African in their land by these Arab militias who are mobilized from various countries. So we hope to see an outrage within the African continent, but also internationally, as genocide is an international crime, and um, it should not be allowed to continue this way. Nehemiah, we're hearing harrowing accounts of mass slaughter, rape, buried alive, mutilated people, and kill lists. These are all targeting the non-Arabs in Darfur. Meanwhile, on the other hand, the UN and other international players are still ticking the box of which risk factors are happening before they call it genocide. What are your thoughts on this? Well, it is really sad that they emphasize in what to call it. I want them to know that when people are killed in masses, they must move and do something because it is known. It's usually in the case of genocide, people or world leaders will say, well, we didn't know that. In the case of Darfur, they do know it. It has been going on for the last 20 years. People who have been displaced 20 years ago have never been able to go home because for the fact that their attackers have yet to be held accountable or apprehended. And now, again, it's repeated. So it is very well known, well documented. And the the reason we call it as it is because this the attack is very systematic. They when also they come to the city, they isolate people from all survival means. They cut communication means, they control water sources, they loot food storages, and they burn it and they burn civilians' home. They take even vehicles. So they control people, even the those who are attempting to flee. So it, it is thematic in a way that isolating all survival means. So people are left with two options, either die by bullets or die by starvation, hunger, and lack of access to medical assistance. And it is also selective in its nature and its scope nature. It is singling out a specific group of people that are going home after home. And those cities that are systematically targeted for these are the cities that occupied or inhabited by the majority of indigenous African people or tribe who have been singled out to be exterminated 20 years ago and continue to be the same. So it is what it is. It's clear and obvious. But what we want is to see the international community take action instead of figuring out what you call. Okay. So on the one hand, there's the fighting between the RSF and the SAF in Khartoum and other cities. But in Darfur, it is the RSF attacking civilians. Where is the SAF in all this? Well, as you stated it clearly, you see the dynamic of the fight in Khartoum. It is confrontation between the RSF, even though they also have both sides committed crimes against civilians. But the difference in Darfur is that civilians are the, the main victims, are systematically targeted by RSF or rabbit support forces. In most cases, the army will be in their headquarters, confined to their headquarters, watching civilians being slaughtered, like in Al Jinaina. They didn't move even one feet from their headquarters. 
even children who ran away went into nearby the military headquarters trying to take shelter. They were assuming they would be protected. They were led to be killed. And in, in most cases, there are only a few places where the army have fought back in the Linji, this the capital of central Darfur, in Niala, and in al Fashir right now. And these are the allied forces of the armed opposition because this is their homeland. These are their families, their people. So they were able to, to fight back, but also the army in the center has betrayed them. They did not supply them with enough weapon or ammunition. At some point, they have to withdraw or either being killed by the rabid support forces. So they ended up withdrawing from the Linji and also from Niala. And now, as I speak to you, Al-Fashir is the last major city in Darfur to remain uncontrolled, but fighting and it's on and off all the time until this morning there have been attacks and attempt to invade Al-Fashir. And it is very dangerous because this is the only city where most internal displaced people have fled from Niala, from the Lingi, from other parts of North Darfur. Now, we've also heard stories about um, sexual violence and the use of rape as a weapon of war in this instant. And this is history repeating itself again in Darfur. In your opinion, is this reoccurring because the perpetrators have seen that those responsible for past atrocities were not held accountable? Absolutely, that is true because of the fact that in the uh, past, in the, throughout the uh, attack in Darfur, um, rape has been used as a weapon of war. And today, it has not only been limited to Darfur, but also the rabbit support forces have used rape as, as a way of terrorizing civilians in Khartoum, whereby women have been abducted, held hostage, most of them, their whereabouts remain unknown as of today, and people are afraid to speak up as a result of fear of retaliation from these militia groups. And because of the immunity that enjoyed by the former President al-Bashir and several members of his government who have been indicted by the ICC, they have yet to be brought to justice. And so that gave a wrong signal to this malicious and the rabid support forces that if al-Bashir could commit a genocide and let go free, then they can continue to do whatever they want as long as they are holding onto their weapon and power, they can get away with it. Mm. So who failed the people of Darfur when it comes to accountability? Well, unfortunately, I think the international community has failed the people of Darfur. The regional actors, the African Union, has failed the people of Darfur because Sudan is the heart of Africa and the people of Darfur are African victims who are under attack. And also the, the overwhelming majority of Sudanese who remained silent all these years waited until the crisis came to their home at the time when the people of Darfur were crying for help and speaking about the danger of enabling these militias, the other people around in other part of Sudan were just doing business as usual, unfortunately, and that has enabled, because silence enabled the perpetrator, does not help the victim. 
So now with the world's eyes focused on the Israel-Palestine conflict and of course, Russia and Ukraine, how can a balance be found so that African conflicts are also prioritized? Or maybe should the AU and African representatives at the UN make more noise, so to speak? Well, absolutely. I think it is time. You always have to speak up for yourself. And that's something that I believe in it, like leading by example. We want to see African Union leading on the issue to bring to make sure that Sudan is not forgotten and that Danfor is not put into the corridor of the, these international political arenas. And I also think world leaders are responsible when, the, um, in the case of these um, international crimes being committed, that they must balance. They should not say or show that they can only address one issue uh, at a time or only focus on issues that most draw attention because of where they are located or because of their interests. I think this is also part of what has enabled even other actors like the attack in Ukraine by Putin. If Bashir was held accountable, these people like Putin will understand that head of state are accountable and they are not above the law. But when you uh, grant immunity or compromise in one crisis, then it will be hard and difficult to pursue accountability in the other crisis, no matter what. And that is the example that I want the world leaders at the UN Security Council, uh, including our own government here in the United States, and also the African leaders, to lead by example, by making sure that all this crisis matters and all these people matters, whether they are in Darfur, in Ukraine, or in Israel or Palestine, because these are human. And the case of Darfur is like really dangerous, and the Sudan is currently completely isolated. In those other areas, you see humanitarian go in, you see people have ability to fight back. Unfortunately, the people of Darfur do not have the, that ability to fight back. So I think the, the situation is the most dangerous one. And I think we, the African people, need to speak up more and speak more louder and also hold our leaders accountable. Mm. Never again. Does that ring hollow to you? Unfortunately, it has been so far remain a slogan. I think, I do believe we can make the never again a reality. But if we are able to mobilize ordinary citizens who can commit and fight against this um, horrific phenomena, but our world leaders, they pledge never again. They have yet to take steps or measures that bring the never again into reality. And I think as um, individuals, we have to take individual and collective responsibility against genocide. That is only time if we all felt responsible and took that collective responsibility and act from where we are, then we can be able to compel our leaders to take measures that will bring the promise of never again into reality. Niamat, thank you for your insights. Thank you for the opportunity. This has been The Lead, the New Lines Magazine podcast. This week's episode was produced by Joshua Martin and hosted by me, Kwangu Liwewe. 
For more on this, subscribe to The Lead on your favorite podcast app or visit our website, newlinesmag.com. Thank you all for joining us.